my belly is full of soup and tea. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just like, and I did not sleep enough last night. So I'm like ready for bed. Yeah. Very much so. That whole, how long did you sleep last night? Okay, six and a half hours. <laughs> which I know is ages for you. It's like two millennia in Matt years, <laughs> but it's not enough for uh, me. Because I finally got, so I have empirically determined that an integer multiple of the length of my major sleep cycle is four hours Mm. because so many almost every time i am forced to sleep for only four hours i wake up feeling incredibly energized (laughs) and then last night i got seven and a half hours and i woke up feeling real tired and Mm. i'm still real tired yeah so i think i'm just a little off from that next period which would be eight which would be eight I I found, like, sometimes seven hours will really get to me, but six will be better. Six mm. and a half is in the no zone. Yeah, it's definitely how it lines up with your cycles. Yeah. Like, eight and a half is quite nice for me, usually. Hmm. I think I need more sleep than most people. Possibly. More, like, more than eight hours. I think, I think eight and a half is my happy place. Hmm. Like, if I get eight hours, I won't feel shitty, but if I get eight and a half hours, I'll feel great. And then if I get nine hours, I feel shitty again because it's too much. Yeah. I mean, I'm not entirely sure how they determine that eight-hour number, but I feel like it's one of those where it's just absurdly generalized and not really that accurate. Mm. Though I I have no idea. Um, We should uh, explain what happened last week. (laughs) Give me a sec. (laughs) You gotta readjust. I think you should explain what happened last week. It's not my fault. It it kind of is. Okay. It's a little my fault. We recorded a Supreme episode. It was beautiful. Our best yet, for sure. Uh, But, but, uh, as you may have noticed, it it hasn't been posted. Yeah, it didn't get... It didn't get to the posting point because something happened. My computer crashed and then the audio files got corrupted and I couldn't rescue them. And it's not my fault. <laughs> it was chance. But yeah, my point near is, computational yeah, hey. <laughs> roundoff errors. My well, here's the thing. It was only that was supposed to be episode ten. Now this is our actual episode ten. It's our first double digits episode. Ooh. Which means we're still learning. And so now I've learned to back up my raw data before I even touch it. Because it could crash. And that's what we've learned. It's a good life lesson. Yeah. Well, I, like I had it saved, yeah. But the files that I had saved got corrupted, so right. I need to export it into an editable, editable format, upload it to the cloud, and then we're good. Yeah. But I didn't get that far, so um, we've learned. Won't won't happen again unless it does. In which case, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my my point is, it's not my fault, and I'm tired. <laughs> I I place no not that much blame on you <laughs> not that much just a little bit of blame just a little bit of blame i'm just saying it was the most perfect episode of podcasting ever but you'll never know so you can just assume it was great then like yeah go leave a review yeah uh edit to your favorites on spotify <laughs> <laughs> so what did we talk about last week that we need to reiterate well we may or may not talk about it next week 
Oh, that's true. So we're going to redo <laughs> redo that episode. We, we'll, we'll bring our guests back. It was so good. We want to do it again. I know. So perfect. Um, yeah, we're, we're bringing our guests back to, to redo a similar but even better interview. Um, but my B. <laughs> Not that much of my B, but like some of it. What do you want to talk about? <sighs> What's going on? Any uh, misplaced negative signs today? <laughs> oh, no. Don't at me. This is a life lesson for everyone. Just don't take your negative signs for granted when you're writing code. Because sometimes they ruin everything. Mm-hmm. And your code is wrong, and you stare at it for hours being like, why is this wrong? It's one negative sign. There's nothing worse. This has happened to me earlier today. Mm-hmm. I also had some troubles. When you like rewrite your code, and you change a bunch of things but you forget to change one line at the very end. Mm. Like I, I'll put my data into files and I change the naming scheme of it. Mm-hmm. But at the very end, when I like print out the name to my terminal, I forgot to change the name there. Like at the very end. Mm. So all this two hour long simulation got done, got to the very last line, it throws me an error. And I was so upset. So nothing saved? Well, it did save. So I was just running it as a proof of concept okay. to make sure it worked, but just the principle of it. Should we talk about code today? We talk about code today. I'm always down to talk about code. You know, I, I have a I have a 9 a.m. music like ear training course three times a week, and one of the like it's got some kids that are younger than me because they're music majors, so they take these courses earlier. And one kid had his enrollment time like at the start of the class, like at 9 a.m. And so he had to enroll in classes for next semester. And he was really hoping to get into CSE 114. And I'm like, like, good on you for learning code as a music major. Hmm. But why? <laughs> I've always wanted to take some of the CSE courses. I took some. Because I figured they'd be, well, took, you know, good what? to learn how to code. Yeah. But then when you look at all of them, they all require other CSE courses and or be a CSE major. Hmm. And I suppose I could just like ask the department to get around that. 114 doesn't. Does it? Yeah, CSE 114 is like the first class, comp sci class that comp sci majors take. Because mm-hmm. in order to even declare a comp sci major, you have to get over like a B in that course, I think, or something like that. So all the comp sci majors take it, but you can take it as someone else. Like it not just seems even like a really sci. restrictive major. Yeah, comp sci is a pretty heavy handed one. I've known a few people that have managed like comp sci minors with physics, and I know one comp sci physics double major, but I don't know how he's doing. I hope he's okay. If you're out there. It seems rough. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah. But. I just wish that physics offered more than just one in class. And that's I know they true. have, they just started putting out, or they just started offering a Python introduction. Mm-hmm. Physics 153, I think. 152, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you but know just, how much all our listeners want to know the course number at Stony Brook's physics department? Uh, section 01 <laughs> meets Monday, Wednesdays. I don't know. <laughs> But, like, I feel like I've progressed past an introductory class. Yeah, because you write your re- research code in Python, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and definitely. there's nothing after that. The one thing I wish, like, I, I have a pretty solid coding background in that, like, I took a, a Python course in high school at a college in my town, and then I took the CSE 114, which is uh, Java for comp sci majors, and then we took uh, the physics coding requirement course, which teaches you C++ and Fortran. 
And, you know, I've been doing code for research in C++ and in Python and in Mathematica for, you know, like three years. So, like, I feel like I kind of know what's up when it comes to code. But what I wish I knew more about was, like, optimization of code structure and stuff. Yeah. Because I I can write code that works, but I can't write code that works really quickly or, like, with very, like, elegant, you know, algorithmic optimization. Like, Mm -hmm. my my code is elementary at best. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. And that's, like, all physics really requires of you, but I know it could be better. Yeah, and especially because I'm trying to get set up with the computing cluster mm-hmm. pretty soon. Like, that's on our to-do list. Mm-hmm. And if I could really speed up time on that and just crank out more data yeah. in a fixed amount of time, that'd be great. But I have absolutely no idea how to do that. That's actually a really good point because a lot of, like, physics simulations are ridiculously computationally expensive yeah so in order to get them to work you need a supercomputer of some sort and in order to do that like it's basically like costing you money in in time like the simulation that i'm trying to replace in my in my thesis work takes two days to run at at a government level supercomputer two full days Mm -hmm. to run and like sometimes there's even like a waiting period before that and i know if you want to run at uh, Stony Brook's computer, which is called Seawolf, the Seawolf supercomputer, there's can be like days worth of wait time before you're even like up in the queue and can actually run. And it's down right now. Did you know Seawolf is down right now? No like idea. rip everyone on this campus who needs it. I mean, our whole network is down. <laughs> this is true. But Seawolf is like not run by the yeah. IT department. It's yeah. run by like real computer engineer people. But yeah, it was crazy. I was talking to show. People. You're only as good as your Wi-Fi. <laughs> if you're any kind of computer person, like please God, get a wired connection. <laughs> you should. You shouldn't be writing code over Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. If if possible. That's something I like. I also wish I knew, because we we code a lot, but there's never really any good introduction to like actual physical computer hardware. So, like, what I know about how computers work and, like, what makes a good computer for writing code is what I've taught myself from the internet. Yeah. But I don't know where... I mean, I guess it's the kind of thing that most people learn over the internet, but I feel like in physics, you're often, like, you get to grad school and you set up your workstation and you are working with these computers and buying equipment. I'm like, wouldn't it be useful to know how this all works and what's good and what's not and how to optimize your whole setup so that you can... Yeah, I never actually thought of that before. Yeah. And I've been planning to buy a new computer or, like, build one mm. when I get it set up in an office somewhere. Yeah. Well, hopefully <laughs> it will be bought for you. <laughs> hopefully you won't need to buy your own computer. Yeah. But I'd also like to have one at home, you know? Oh, yeah, at home. Yeah, like, I have I have my desktop at home, and I'm yeah. very, it's a, a solid investment for me. Because I have a tiny laptop, and having a tiny laptop is great for going around and doing things. Terrible for your spine. <laughs> my my back hurts so much if I'm working at this tiny little laptop, like hunched over doing all day. Doing a little goblin. Yeah, a little code goblin. Yeah. And I worked on that, like writing code as my job, like eight hours a day, ten yeah. hours a day for for years. And so <laughs> having a, a desktop that you can just look straight forward at is really nice. 
it's something that I think gets overlooked. And it's like more powerful and you have a wired connection so everything's faster and mm-hmm. it's good. And I can game. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a pro gamer, did you know? Do you have RTX? No. <laughs> don't Damn. have anything. It's not really a gamer then. I don't even know what RTX is, if I'm honest. I have a nice graphics card. I don't have a nice graphics card. I see your uh, PC is an Energy Star. Is it? Yeah, it's got the sticker. Okay. Congrats. Thanks. It's refurbished. You have joined Stony Brook's mission to reduce <laughs> energy costs. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I, I was thinking when I decided I wanted a desktop, because I got to work on a desktop at my REU this summer, and it was really nice to, you know, look mm-hmm. straight forward and write your code yeah. at a desk. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Just have, like, a designated place to do your work. It's, like, really good for you, like, like mentally about how you approach your work you're like okay i'm in the office now time to work whereas if i'm on my laptop that's like also what i you know watch netflix on and check facebook on so it's like harder to stay focused so do you not do that on your desktop not as much no Hmm. yeah my desktop's more straight for work like sometimes i'll chill and watch videos on it because i got a pretty big screen (laughs) i was in my research meeting today and my advisor has like a 27 inch iMac screen, you know? Yeah. And because it's an iMac, it also has like that big border on the bottom with the Apple symbol and like all the, like it has really big like bevels around the whole thing. So it looks gigantic. Mm-hmm. It's so huge. And so I'm like, how big is your screen? He's like 27 inches. And I'm like, oh, mine's 27 inches, but it's got, I think it might be 21. I don't know, but it's like, it's a big screen, but it's got like tiny bevels, so it looks way smaller. Yeah. And and then he started like trying to one-up me on his screen, and he's like, yeah, but is it like high resolution? And I'm like, I mean, it's a 4K monitor, like it's a nice monitor. And he's like, well, mine's 5K. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Just like my phone is 5G. Yeah. Also today, like, we were we were moving from one part of his office to the next, right? And there were two laptops on the table, and he's trying to move one. And he's like, is this yours? And it was like a MacBook sitting on the table. And he, I look at it, and I'm like, what do you think? Because I would never purchase a Mac right now. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know. You could have been enlightened over the past week <laughs> and finally decided to buy yourself a decent computer. And I'm like, never. Uh, I would never. I'm just not a fan of Apple products. Yeah, I don't. I don't every, like it. Almost every professor I've seen has one. Yeah, has, yeah, has a Mac. Yeah, like sometimes people in my group will send me keynote presentations, and I'm like, I can't yeah. read this. And the fact that I can't read this is the inherent problem with Macs. It's that they're not. They're like so full of propri- proprietary software that it's designed to make you only buy Apple products. Yeah, and to kind of make life hell for anyone who doesn't have them. And I don't like that business model. And I, this is why I like Linux. <laughs> Free and open source, man. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It's the community. I know. It's like everything is designed to like work with people on. I send people PDFs of my slides because why would you send anything other than a PDF of people who, even people who send PowerPoints like slides, like in Microsoft PowerPoint files. I'm like, how dare you? Have we talked about this before? I don't know. Like when professors send out Word doc files? Yeah, or like they post the homework as dot docs. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, why would you? No, and I don't. Download those on your computer. And it's, yeah, I'm like, 
all I'm going to do here is import it to my drive and look at it on Google Drive anyway. Like, never. I, like, we had to submit That's everything. A lot of work. Why do you do that? What? What do you do? You just open it in as Word? a PDF. No. Or, or open it as a PDF. I don't know. I like having things in the drive anyway, so if I'm going to be, like, working on it. Because we had, for our GRFP stuff, we had to send files back and forth as dot .docx or docs. Doc? docx docx whatever we just we just send those files and i don't have word because i'm on linux so why would i have word and so everything i every single thing i did was in in google docs but with the like the dot docs extension mm-hmm. and it worked out fine yeah they yeah. generally they've gotten better over the years at going between the two of them yeah it's definitely better than even like last year i feel like they didn't have that as yeah. well like you'd have to import it into Google Docs and then re-export it, but it like had a little banner up top saying it was always in that docs fi- like format. And it always mess up the formatting. Yeah. At least when I used it. Mhm. But it's it's gotten way better. Yeah, I think that's something that's like easily overlooked in science is like what you're doing in terms of computers. I mean, maybe we're biased because we both do pretty computationally heavy research. Although that's kind of the general direction of the field now. Yeah, I mean, especially since, like, machine learning is a whole thing now. It's got so many applications in literally every field. Yeah. That, like, why wouldn't you code that? Remember we were going to do a hackathon thing on machine learning? (laughs) Yeah, we really wanted to. I wanted to. Yeah, I wanted to as well. And... It just didn't work out because it was in like late September and by then we were already drowning. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was too, it was too far into the semester to the point where we were drowning work, but too early in the semester that we didn't really have enough time to get together and plan anything. Yeah. I feel like we just like gotten back and then it was already like a month in and I'm like, where did September go? That's how I felt every month though. Like October doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it's November now. It's yeah. the best month of the and year. And it's like halfway through. It's not halfway it's not, through. It's a quarter of the way through November. It's... it's. You know, I I think yeah. very strictly in one week chunks because my research timeline is in yeah. week-long chunks because I, I meet once a week. So, like, I'm always thinking in terms of next week. So, in my brain, it's already November 15th. <laughs> I'm thinking strictly in terms of the amount of days left until the first uh, application deadline. Yeah, yeah. December 1st. <laughs> I don't know. I had to. I had to explain to my advisor today because we were talking a little bit about grad school admissions. I had to talk to, like, explain to him why I was so, like, not confident in myself for getting into grad school. He's like, Audrey, like, why do you not think you're gonna get in? Like, you'll get in somewhere. You'll be fine. And even if you don't, like, you'll be fine without grad school. I'm like, you don't understand how much undergrad admissions like ruined me in terms of my own like self image. And, like, how I thought of myself in academia. Like, it just ruined it. And so now I'm, like, I don't trust applications anymore. <laughs> yeah. I f- like, I have an impression that I don't come off well on paper. Like, I don't look good in applications. Mm-hmm. Which isn't true. Really, what it comes down to is that undergrad admissions were a gamble. They're mostly random after a certain point. So... It's really not accurate, but it might. It's just stuck in my brain where like so many places rejected me or waitlisted me that I'm like, I don't look good on applications. Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, why don't places want me? 
And it's so much worse now because it's so much more competitive. It's so much more competitive and it's so much more important to me. Yeah, it means so much more to your career. Yeah, I mean, it means more to your career and it means like six years of your life that are really going to change a lot. At least six years, probably. Also, to me, it's kind of just a validation of the past yeah. 16 years. <laughs> Why 16? Not doing much at the age of five? Well, no, because we spent 12 years. Okay, okay, I guess, yeah. Going through, you know, really, public though, school and then four years here. I feel like I didn't really care about school until I was probably 16 or 17. Because I, like, I grew up in an artsy family. It wasn't really our drive to do great in school. Like, I did well because I was, like, you know, pretty, like, naturally perceptive and, mm -hmm. like, you can you do math. Well, I couldn't at first. I've told you this. I did shit at like first and second grade math. I was in like the worst group. But yeah, but like up to a certain point, like especially in middle school, like I could do math quite well. I didn't really need to try. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was good at science and I was good at reading and I was good at literature and writing and all this. So like I didn't really need to try at school. And so I did like, you know, okay, but mediocre overall. And so, but once I like found physics, it was really like my drive to start doing well. Cause I'm like, oh, if I want to do this, you know, I gotta, I gotta do it. Like I gotta, I gotta really try to be perfect mm -hmm. in all my academics, like actually put my best foot forward instead of just like riding along on natural talent. And so I didn't really care until probably like sophomore year junior year of high school and then i was like oh shit fuck like let's go <laughs> we gotta do it and that's when i really kicked it up but i mean i was kind of the same way because i didn't make the decision that i wanted to do physics until junior year hmm. and up to then i yeah i'd been kind of getting by just on my natural ability to be smart <laughs> i guess <laughs> Yeah, which is, I think, a, a thing that a lot of people struggle with. Like, you find what you're good at, and you'd want to just do it because you're already good at it. Whereas, mm -hmm. like, when I took my first physics course, like, I already knew that I liked physics conceptually. But when I took my first, like, actual, like, algebra-based physics class, I didn't do great at first. Like, I remember I got a bad grade on the first quiz I ever took in physics, and I cried so much because I'm like, I'm actually, like, shit at this, but I love it, but, like, I'm shit. And so, like, finding a way to love things you're bad at is actually really important. I think it makes me appreciate physics more because it's, like, not easy for me, naturally. Yeah. And, like, whereas, like, certain things that I'm quite good at, like, I'm really, I'm naturally pretty good at writing and I'm pretty good at music stuff. And so, like, I'm sure, though, to a point, like, everything gets hard. I don't want to I don't want to write off certain careers because everything gets hard when you put your heart into it and you try and go as far as you can go. Um and I I know that because I've done my music minor and it got hard. <laughs> it's not easy anymore. It's like for me it's easier than physics, but that's just because I'm not that far in, you know. Mhm. Mm um but it's so easy to just find something that you kind of have a natural like affinity towards and you're already like kind of start out good at it and you just want to sit there because it's comfortable but and it's always good when it challenges you yeah because then that motivates you to actually work for it yeah like physics is the thing that like m makes me 
just like stare at a chalkboard and like what Mm -hmm. oh okay and then when you get it it's like the coolest feeling ever yeah it's like that one thing that will get me going like that like music i find fascinating but i don't like it doesn't keep me up at night you know have you ever solved equations in your sleep yeah (laughs) 10 million percent it's like uh like video games have you ever played like a game on your phone too much and then you start like thinking in that game this happens a lot to me with like especially there's one game that's like a brain bug it like infects me and i can't get it out of my head it's the game flow it's the one where you like connect Mm -hmm, the colored mm -hmm. dots on the grid and you just start to see the world that way yeah i just start thinking in flow and i'm like how is this even working and then i wake up and i've been dreaming of playing it and i'm like what but like physics is the same way it gets in your brain i think feel like that's the same as anything like you learn a language you start dreaming in french you know oh yeah yeah so it just totally encompasses you yeah (laughs) we were talking about computers (laughs) do you think we live in a simulation uh have we talked about this you've brought it up before no (laughs) i'm not surprised by your hesitance (laughs) to answer this Uh, Uh, what about my philosophy corner i know it never really happened forgot about that Uh, okay what was your first like coding experience was it in college was it was it 277 no 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 it was in high school okay it was on shameless plug codeacademy.com please sponsor us (laughs) and yeah i think it was i don't remember if i started with python or java Mm. but i know i just kind of just picked one and went with it and you did you choose to do that as part of physics or just out of curiosity just out of curiosity really Mm. and it was great because it walks you through things it's a really simple platform um really user-friendly but I feel like the problem with a lot of introductory code platforms or like programs or tutorials or whatever mm-hmm. is that they're so superficial. Like all it's you can really how learn helps. is how to print out some strings <laughs> and then like add a couple of numbers mm. and it doesn't really teach you yeah, any of the applications of it. Yeah. Especially not specific to like a computational based project. Yeah, and I think that's why, like, project-based learning is so important in CompSci. Yeah. Like, that's why uh, I took CSE 114. That's, like, that's like intro to Java for CompSci majors. And what you do at the end is you make a card game using, like, graphical user interfaces and and all the logic that goes into it. It's mostly a logic test when you first start coding. Um, and so you we made, my year, they made a Sesame Street Uno. Which, they could have just made Uno, but they decided to make it Sesame Street, which I appreciate. Gotta add a little personal (laughs) flair. But, um, it's, like, the first thing you do that, like, seems like it has at least some sort of application, but still, like, applies all the very simple things that you start doing. Mm -hmm. Which is, like, but it it always feels like a leap from, from doing code in a class to... I have this like scientific problem I need to solve and how am I going to write the yeah. code that will solve that? Yeah. Cause I taught myself Python and I taught myself C plus mm-hmm. And from that, the only thing I really knew how to do was make choose your own adventure games. Yeah. So I, I spent a long time doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I took, I took Python in, in high school at a college 
and and that was one of our projects was was make a, a text based like you know mm. question answer kind of RPG, <laughs> but. I, I feel like my exposure to code was a little different, though, because in my family, like, my older brother, who I look up to a lot, is is a game designer. And so he went to school to learn to write how to code video games. And, like, I mean, he does a lot of the graphics stuff and all this. But that was, like, my first introduction to, like, using code to make things, mm-hmm. which was really cool. And so I think it always kind of sits, it sits different in my brain than, like, I feel like it does for most people because, like, it seems like a really... It's a highly logic-based thing to do, but you can apply it to such creative things that it always seemed like code was always a way to do something mm-hmm. for me. And so, like anything you want to do, there's a way to code it, yeah. which is like so the cool. Most part. And so, but my, my first like in-depth like professional coding experience I was really down in the deep end because when I started working in my first lab, they were like, okay, like you're going you're gonna to learn C++ on your own. You've got a month. And then we're going to give you, you know, all these simulations that have been written by other physicists, which means it's not readable code. <laughs> it's not commented. It's got shitty documentation. It's yep. like just a mess, but it's a mess that takes six hours to run on your computer and just is very spooky you know it's my my first introduction to coding like straight from the terminal as well so it was all like very overwhelming but now for my thesis like all my code is code i've written from scratch Mm -hmm. which is such a different experience because the structure is not laid out for me already so i this week literally like half of the time i spent on research this week was spent restructuring and reorganizing my code so it runs like adult code <laughs> you know like it's not just shitty little like a bunch of random files that don't really make sense all together it's like it's got clear file structure it's got documentation it's got comments and it's like very organized now but it's hard to get there yeah especially after some really introductory coding experiences. Like it's hard to start from nothing and build like a scientific level simulation or analysis script or something just from scratch. It's definitely something I should have planned out beforehand, but didn't. And so I'd like, I'd write a new met- like function into my code and be like, wait, shit, this belongs to a separate file. <laughs> like, move it over to a separate file. And it's all a big mess, but it's got structure now, which is nice. Props to you. Thanks. Reorganize your code, folks. <laughs> yeah, but definitely when I like first started thinking of going into physics, I did not imagine how much coding I would do. Oh, same. I didn't really understand that I would be doing coding. Yeah, honestly. I always thought like you know doing math on a chalkboard—that's yeah. what physics is. <laughs> but that seemed fun to me. It. I mean, it is fun. It is fun. It is fun. But I feel like for me now, it's like thank God this worked out, but I love coding. And so being, even though I didn't expect it, being in a field where that's what I do pretty much full time is like really amazing. I, I do the math on the chalkboard and then I put it into my code and it's beautiful. Get results that work. Did I tell you my code works now? It works. Congrats. It's beautiful. Do you have a name for it yet? No. It's so hard. I have to, I have to come up with a like a name for my code, like an actual name to call it. I've just been calling it like e tracks for like electron tracks because that's what it does. 
but that's not a catchy. And its competition is called Osiris, which is like so cool. Hmm. How about X? For what? It's the short version of E Tracks. Just X A A C K S. No, A X. I don't, I don't like think it? that's it. I don't think that's it. Hmm. I want it to be an animal because that makes me happy. Snacks. <laughs> Snacks. The only one we came up with that was an actual acronym was either paste or waste, which are both bad. So <laughs> I don't want to call my code waste. Hot take. It's the best level of irony. <laughs> no, but I was like... Thinking of calling it panda because the pandas are slow and fat, but this is light and fast code. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be funny. And then I also thought about calling it like parakeet for some reason. Because I, I know PA for plasma accelerator would be really nice to incorporate in there. But so I just started thinking of animals that start with PA or have a PA unit. Hippo. Hippopotamus. <laughs> Hippopotamus. <laughs> That's so many letters to come up with things. It doesn't even, you know, Osiris is not an acronym, yeah, so. and it doesn't need to stand for anything. But they put it in all caps, so I feel like it needs to stand for something. But I don't know. What about paleontology? Paleontology rolls off the tongue. Palindrome. <laughs> I um the first simulations I worked on in my in my nuclear lab were called QSIM for quartz detector simulation and Remol for I don't know what I mean the mole is from molar, but I don't know what the re part is. But it was called Remol. But I don't know. I feel like it needs to be short because all good ones are short. Yeah. Just but like no more than three syllables, like Osiris. Remol, Qsim, all short. two syllables is... Two, two syllables would be ideal. If you could get one, a one syllable, syllable would be no, hot. No, yeah. one syllable's too little. You think so? Yeah, I think it's too little. I don't even know if Which I... Which is why paste and waste are both bad. I think... Mm. Mm. And, like, two syllables helps it be less ambiguous. Because, like, if you named your code cat... Which stands for something. But like cat can mean so many things. What's the longest one syllable word? <laughs> I think it's like airy, but there's a weird way of spelling it. I'm gonna look it up. That's two syllables. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I would think something like trough. Longest one syllable word, like in, in number of letters? Yes. Are you Googling? I'll give you a hint. Let's see if you can guess it. Okay. It's nine letters long. Jeez. Well, there's also a bunch of different contenders. Okay. What's it start with? An S. They all start with an S. S. And it's one syllable. And it's nine letters. How many letters are in school? I'll give you a hint. It could be something a parakeet does. What? Could be something. Or just animals in general. Specifically when they're feeling (laughs) abnormally rowdy. Rowdy? (laughs) I 
don't know. I keep thinking of two syllable words. I want to tell you. Yeah. Screeched. That's screeched. I guess that is one syllable. I I didn't think about the fact that you could put an ed and it would still stay. There's also schlepped, scratched, schlepped, scrounged, scrunched, stretched, and straights and strength. All s words. I guess s's do kind of. It's it's kind of toe in the line. Yeah. But, but all that's right. what the first right. Google result says. And that's all I've cared to look at. <laughs> yeah. Generally. Mm. Yeah, I feel like if I knew that I would be coding this much, I would have bought a different computer in high school. Yeah. Yeah. Because mine's tiny and, you know, pretty... It's like, as far as processors go, it's pretty weak. And it's got, like, none mem- memory. <laughs> but... I also think I would have changed the general direction of my coursework. Yeah. I would have taken more comp sci. Yeah. You know, I took comp sci freshman year, and then it just became harder and harder to fit anything else in. But maybe in grad school, we could probably throw in another comp sci course. I'm sure we'll have a, more than enough workshops and such. If we get it. Yeah. I hate when people are like, oh, yeah. What do you have to worry about? You'll get in somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like undergrad where you could just send your applications across the board. Yeah. You know, you're limited to two, what you can afford with application fees. Yeah. And there's absolutely no guarantee. Yeah. You could probably get waivers from a lot of places. Yeah, you could. Like, you specifically, not rhetorical you. I think you could probably get waivers from a bunch of places. I could. Like, talk to the... Is there one for Toronto? A fee? Yeah. You should... Because you've been talking to those people a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, should, it's on my to-do list yeah, for this week. I'm yeah, going to look into waivers. Ask ask them if if they know how you could get it. Like, email the people you've been talking to and be like, hey, do you know if there's a way I could get a fee waiver mm-hmm. for, for this application? And they'll probably put you in touch with the department people that run that. I've got my rich lady counsel to... <laughs> help me out thank god have you started your personal statement yet no i've made a bunch of documents for it but they're all blank (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) yeah because i was talking to my advisor about how to start it and i feel like we are so in the mindset of undergraduate applications where it's all telling a story yeah and it's entirely different from this because when you're applying to undergrad you're in the same field as people from all different like subject backgrounds Mm -hmm. people who want to do all kinds of different things so you really need to like make you as a person stand out Mm -hmm. and not so much focus on hey this is what i want to do in school because that's not really what undergrad is Mm -hmm. whereas now in graduate school you more or less all come from the same like yeah you're all academic background you all kind of want to do the same thing Mm -hmm. more or less yeah with some and you got a bunch of really tired, <laughs> overworked physicists reading a hundred personal statements a night. Well, not a night, but yeah. <laughs> fast readers <laughs> re- reading a hundred personal statements, and they just they just don't want to. They yeah. don't care. I think the big difference is undergrad. You're selling yourself as yeah. a person. Like you're trying to isolate like the qualities that make you unique, and you're really pushing those. And you're really trying to show like personal development and growth, whereas grad school you're selling your experience, your your and your potential. Whereas like 
undergrad doesn't matter what you've already done in your personal statement. Not really at all. Like, I wrote my personal statement about... What did I write it about? I think I wrote it about, like, just being a weird person in a tiny town and, like, not having room to change. You know? I'm pretty sure I wrote mine about wanting to go to Mars. <laughs> yeah. Like, you can write... It's, like, it's more of a story... It's so open. ...to show that you're mature and that you will thrive as an adult independently than it is to sell your potential as like a researcher as an academic whereas grad school you've already done <laughs> the baseline like you can be an academic you need to sell the can, the extras yeah. stuff you've done your research experience your presentation experience and you have to very actively say this is what I've done. Here's what I want to do, how I plan to do it, and who I want to work with at your school. Like, yeah. It's very pointed, and there's very little room for narrative, Yeah, which is interesting. I was chatting with one advisor. We were just emailing. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, he said he wasn't going to be taking on, or at least wasn't expecting to take on new students. But he's like, hey, it really all kind of depends on our hiring process. Mm -hmm. Like, We may or may not be hiring new research assistants. And I was really thrown off. Oh, because it's like a job? Yeah. Yeah, it's weird to think of it as a job. And like outside the United States, um, these sort of programs are more of like a job hiring process. Like you kind of get hired into, at least as far as I understand. I think it depends on where. But yeah. yeah. But in a way, this is sort of like a hiring process. I mean, it really is. It definitely is. We're <laughs> submitting applications to a paid position. Yeah. <laughs> like I'd say, yeah, that's a job. It's weird because our job is to become. Our job is to be trained. Yeah, really. it's to it's like a higher training process to an extent. Your first two years maybe are a higher training process because you're yeah, in courses. That is true. You're going to seminars. You're doing all that, but you get past the initial coursework and stuff, and then you are uh, there to do research. You're there to contribute to the science, which is cool, and then it really is a job. So it's just a job with a really long training period. <laughs> yeah, that's just academia. Yeah. It takes so long it takes <laughs> to get into the field. A real long time. A lot of money. Mm. A lot of time and effort. Like if we're lucky, we'll have jobs when we're 30. <laughs> I mean. Because you got to get through postdoc. I would consider that a job. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess I'd consider postdoc a job. You won't be faculty. Yeah. It's postdoc faculty? Postdocs. In a way. Not really faculty, no. No. It's, it's like. It's staff. You, you work there. But you don't. Faculty implies that you have some teaching element and you don't as a postdoc. What about research faculty? Oh, that's true. I guess faculty is more so you're tied down to the university. And they don't expect you to go anywhere anytime soon. Or I think it's more semantics. Faculty. Hey. Came up. Uh, okay, in the U.S. in mathematics, postdocs are usually considered faculty. But I think the main difference is that postdoc doesn't have to be at a university, too. It can be at a, a lab, a national lab, a government office, um, you know, anywhere. But wouldn't their employees also kind of be considered faculty there? They'd be considered employees. I suppose. Faculty yeah, what is, is, a, is a word specific to academia, isn't it? 
I don't actually know. Let me define faculty Google. Because so honestly, you really only ever hear it through an academic lens. Yeah. But I never actually thought faculty if it were confined to that. <laughs> An inherent mental or physical power. That's not the kind of faculty <laughs> I'm thinking. I mean, I would consider our skills an inherent power. Um, teaching staff of a university or college or of one of its departments or divisions viewed as a body. Yeah, members of a particular pr- profession considered collectively, but that's... Oh, okay, so that's a dated definition is to, like, consider a group of professionals, faculty. Modern usage just means teaching staff. So faculty does imply teaching. Haha, I know things. I see you ordered four boxes of palladium. Four boxes? Palladium. What? Oh, you're looking at my weird receipt? I got a new pair of boots. Four boxes? I don't know where the four came from. Box size four. I think that's the size of the box. Big word here says palladium. Yeah, because I got some palladium boots. Are you making meth? No, it's it's a, it's a brand of boot. That's not what Google says. Google I... says it's a chemical element. <laughs> It is a rare and lustrous silvery white They're right metal. There. Do you see them? I'm really embracing a blavy as a color scheme this year. I'm I've, quite enjoying it. I have it. no idea what that means. Black and navy. Blavy? Blavy. It's okay. a thing. Let me get your hot take right here. Okay. Now you got to tell me if you agree or disagree. Okay. No thought. Just give me your gut feeling. <laughs> sure. Maroon, navy red. Maroon, navy red? Maroon is navy red. Yeah. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah, maroon is a is a darker, more purple red. So adding navy to red would get you something close to maroon. Oh, granted, it depends on the ratios, but color science. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Cool. I'm glad. Thanks. <laughs> so computers, huh? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So. When you really think about it, it's really amazing how computers work. <laughs> it like, really granted, is. Granted, I have absolutely no clue. And every time I try and find an answer, I just can't. <laughs> like, how do computers, how did we trick a bunch of rocks and metals into <laughs> thinking? I think you got it. Well, thinking is a, a broad word that I don't think is entirely applicable, but... I mean, you got to start with the invention of the transistor. Right. Once we had transistors, then you have something that can flip binary stuff, and then you have binary logic gets developed. Or binary logic happened before transistors, did it? I'm not going to say I know things, but... How was the first machine programmed? Well, you've seen. Have you seen, like, Turing machines? No. Oh, Turing machines were like um, World War II developments. Um, and they were like very heavily mechanical and you'd program it by like turning knobs. Like it was a mechanical computer. Okay. And then, so you could turn it ones and zeros, ones and zeros, you know. And then, you know, you go a little further, you got like big like room-sized computers and then those function on punch cards which we've seen and then 
eventually you get some digital input and stuff, and then you get, like, assembly language becomes a thing, and then, you know, you get higher and higher level programming languages until you're at where we are at now. It's pretty... Quick crash course. Thanks. <laughs> I know compute. <laughs> <laughs> Got distracted. But, you know, like, granted, I think one reason computers are seen as something so crazy is because of how drastically they've changed our, like, you know, just, like, human landscape in terms of, like, how you spend your day. Like, you've got a computer with you at all times. Yeah. And that's such a new thing. Like, they develop so fast that it's kind of insane. It's also weird to think that we really haven't, at least in our lifetimes, we really haven't not had that. Yeah. It's always been something yeah. we've had. So we really don't know anything else. And how much it's changed the framework of science. Yeah. Is something really remarkable because, you, you know, take physics, it's gone from chalkboard to computer really fast. And now, like, everyone's doing all their work through machine learning and it's becoming more and more of a computational process of performing new physics. Like, if you think about how many supercomputers are out there just calculating like ground state energies of different compounds through quantum mechanics like that's their job now and it's not a person's job anymore and i think a lot of people get scared by that especially i mean you can trace that back into like manufacturing jobs getting replaced by robots it's the same kind of concept like how how we do science has changed because you don't need to be able to do the calculation yourself anymore you yeah. know you don't have to be able to crunch the numbers and you don't have to be able to Really, you like Mathematica exists. You don't know how to do algebra anymore. <laughs> like it doesn't even matter. Like granted, we still learn that, and it's important that you understand Maybe it. Maybe you don't know how to do algebra. <laughs> I just don't know how to do integrals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like now, computers are at a place where they're replacing a lot of that computational work for us. So the work that we do as scientists is a lot more analytical and qualitative than it used to be. I remember my first ever research meeting. Um, the one girl in our group she was kind of reporting her end. She's like, oh my gosh, it took me three pages of just line after line of line of work to solve this integral. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why don't you just use your computer? Yeah. yeah. Plug it into Wolfram or yeah, integral Yeah, well, Wolfram Alpha. Shameless plug. Like, I didn't say anything, but I was just wondering, like, yeah. do, you, do you, why would you do it by hand? Yeah, and I think that's something that we've, like, kind of chafed against as like kind of one of the earlier generations going through college with all these computational t like uh tools at our disposal like i don't do integrals by myself anymore <laughs> and so when i get to exams with like older professors who expect you to have that like oof. solid background oof. doesn't that hurt big oof yeah like you have the tools to do things automatically and you'll take advantage of them to get your homework done faster like obviously yeah but then you lose the ability to do it by hand and then you're tested on that. I remember our E&M one exam. Mm -hmm. I think it was a second exam and I left an answer in terms of the integral of like cosine <laughs> to the third. And I just boxed that. I'm like, this is it. There you go. My advisor just gave the second uh, E&M exam today. And every time he gives an exam now, he, he shows me the exam. He's like, could you do this? And I'm like, all right. I'll be like, here, I'll look through it. And, uh, like, we took this course last year, and so it's not that 
stale in my mind, like how to do everything. And he's like, let's see if he'll still be able to do this exam. So he basically unofficially gives me the exam <laughs> as well. And it's been a year since I've done it, but it was like, I was looking at it today and he gave him a question that was actually kind of like, it's not a hard question, but when you read it, you panic because it's a, it's a hollow shell mm. with a distribution, like a surface charge that's rotating <laughs> and then you, yeah, yeah. Then you like, have to like analyze the fields and the potentials with that, of uh, the magnetic fields. Because once you set it up, yeah, you just follow through the procedure. Yeah, just setting it up. Yeah, just setting it up. Like you see, it's that kind of thing that that my advisor really likes to give students. Where you sit down at the exam and you see a question you've never thought of before, you've never seen before, you have no idea how to do it, and then you are forced to sit there and figure it out. Which is a really good way to do exams, actually. Like, it, first off, terrible if you're anxious. <laughs> terrible. In in theory. In theory, though, it's a perfect fantastic materialization of that. I don't know if it's a euphemism or what it is of things just being excellent in theory, not so great in practice. Yeah, like I was telling him, I'm like, I know how to do this problem, and I'd be able to do it if I were sitting down on the test, if I as long as I had enough time. But I look at him and I'm like. But if I were an anxious student going into this exam and I saw that, I'd have a heart attack. Like I'd be so nervous. The first like especially back in it's your first E and M course, like you see that. Yeah. Like we've had another semester of E and M after that too. And so now it's like seems very manageable and approachable to me, which first off, like, wow, we've grown. I think I, I think I would panic, <laughs> yeah. honestly. Like, but just having those kinds of questions are a great way to test like critical thinking skills. But in a test-taking environment where you know you're like you're getting graded mm. and it's your only shot and you don't have like resources at your disposal to help, like you can so easily lose to anxiety at that point. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. And I feel like that's one of the ways that the development of like the internet and computers and all that has kind of outpaced the learning process mm. because. Like, this is just me spitting bullshit, maybe, right now. Mm -hmm. But, like, test-taking when you're sitting down with no resources, just, like, your brain and your pencil at your disposal. Um, granted, I was, wasn't alive back in the day before <laughs> computers. But you had much more limited access to resources. Mm -hmm. Like, you couldn't just Google something and have mm -hmm. access to the entirety of physics and its history. Like, you were a lot more limited to your inherent knowledge and like a limited amount of resources mm -hmm. and that more closely mimics the testing environment yeah that's true and i think stuff like uh open book exams and open note exams are great for this though because what you really want to test is not whether or not your students like memorize some formulas or because they need to know them because we can just look some up or like memorize some integration rules or something like trig integrals are a thing I still don't know. <laughs> and I probably should, but I don't because I look them up every time I need them. Um, stuff like that. Like I got points off on our open book quantum exam because it was some nasty like uh, quadratic times an exponential integral Yeah. that I had no idea how to do. And despite the fact that I even brought an integral table, I couldn't figure out. So I just wrote down the answer because it was you know from the textbook. We had an open book. <laughs> but I got points off because I didn't show enough work on how to solve this. Yeah. And it was absurd. Yeah. I think it, it is interesting to see how testing is going to change as like people like us become the ones giving the tests. Because yeah. I don't think I'd give an exam where you're not allowed to bring anything in. 
And like standard in physics is to let you bring in like a sheet of letter sized paper with formula sheets. But I think I would do like open note because just writing things really tiny on a formula sheet, like I've wasted too much of my life doing that. I don't want to make students do that again. But like, I would rather have them have all the resources at their disposal, but give them questions that make them think originally to actually test their ability to like, because in order to do that, you have to understand it. Mm-hmm. You can't just copy it out of the book. Like you, mm-hmm. you got to understand how it works and how to apply it to a new problem, which is something that some of our tests that we've taken have done well and some have absolutely not. Like I know... We took some quantum exams that had some questions that really made you figure it out, which sucked because it's quantum mechanics and it's really counterintuitive most of the time. I was in no position to figure those out. Yeah. Those were a little bit too far in that, like, he was asking us to re-derive stuff that we are learning now in our second semester of quantum. But, um, like, I think think our our E&M exams did really well at that. Even though you still only got like a formula sheet or anything, you know, I think they did a good job of like, he always goes in order from easy question to hard question. Mm-hmm. And so the first like question, pretty much everyone gets right because uh, it's a basic knowledge test. Like as long as you've paid attention in class and done the homework, so you should be able to do it perfectly. Um, like this year's exam, it was like a very basic method of images you know, I know. <laughs> non e m people are probably, like, not at all understanding what we're talking about. But it was a very basic question. The, uh, the as... one thing I could never do in e was a method of images. Really? Mine was multiple expansions. <laughs> that was always the... <laughs> I still don't get it. What don't I loved... Oh, what was it called? What? This is the one where you had to set up, like, differential equations. I forget what it was called. What? Separation, separation of variables. Oh, separation of variables. When we solve problems with that, I loved it. Yeah, I'm so good at it. Math so simple. Fun. So nice. Yeah. So straightforward. But mm-hmm. method of images. Terrible. You never got it? Terrible. I still don't get it. <laughs> um Yeah, but they, they're they're ranked from easy to hard and there's like uh three actual like full workout questions and then a page of like conceptual questions. And so the first one, almost everyone gets right. Second one, like yeah, 75% of people get right and or, like, I think it even says, like, 50% of people get right. And then the third question, like, 30% of people get perfectly right. And, like, it's it's actually a hard question. Like, this was the this, this spinning spherical shell. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Audrey, how did you do this? And I'm like, me being me, I'm like, oh, you know, take take it a magnetic field of a loop from Biosavart and then integrate that over the whole sphere, like, using cylindrical coordinates and different radii. But I don't think I'd be able to do that if I were given that question the time we took the class. Like, in a test-taking environment, I don't know if I'd be able to think of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas, it's the first thing I thought of now, which show, goes to show, like, how much you learn in just, like, one semester of of just school. <laughs> yeah, and once you're out of the class and it's, you're no longer, like, worried about the grade of it... It's so much easier. Yeah. Yeah, like, really the, the way you process the information over time is really what you get from the class, not not the grade the first time you take it or like your exam two grade doesn't matter it's it's what you remember a year later when you're asked to do a problem that's applied to your work yeah because i remember studying for the physics theory in hindsight Mm -hmm. was really affirming to me because i you you know it's almost no i think like 60 percent of it what is classical mechanics no yeah 20 percent no 
Sixty percent was not classical mechanics. Okay, no, sixty not not sixty percent, <laughs> but like the majority of it. No, it's the largest fraction. It's the largest fraction, but it's not the majority of it. Whatever. Very different things. It's like twenty percent classical mechanics. Audrey, I'm tired. <laughs> the largest portion of it is classical mechanics, and I remember I would just blow through those problems when I was like studying and. Yeah, they were like, so simple, and I was just like thinking to myself how much trouble I was having three years ago at this time. Yeah, like struggling with these very same questions, and I just felt so good about myself. Yeah, I think that's the coolest thing. I've had so many moments like that. Like being a senior in physics makes you all, like, or not in physics, but just being a senior makes you instantly like very retrospective about where you were when you first started because you know Mm -hmm. you're closing out this whole process you're writing a new application for a new thing after this and like it's coming to a close so you really start thinking about kind of what you've done in the past four years and so I've had so many moments this semester where I'm thinking back to where I was even even last year and I'm like wow like I I'm so proud of myself (laughs) look at me actually knowing how to use the rack notation I, I know and it's easier than using anything else yeah (laughs) but just in the moment Mm -hmm. it was like the most abstract thing on the planet yeah and even like just like things from from the first time we ever took ian in like our second semester freshman year like so much of that went over my head like i did worse in that class for sure than than in uh classical mechanics and there was so much that like I got right on the test because I studied really hard, but wasn't quite, like, settled in my brain yet. And now it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, that's how it is. Cool. Great. And the same is true of coding. Yeah. The same is definitely true of coding. Like, my freshman year, I could not have written the code I'm writing now. Even though, like, technically my code is not that complicated. It's just so, first off, it's so clean. Mm, And the ability to to do it just straight through. Yeah. Like, the less you have to look at documentation is mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah, like, the less I have 60 tabs on Stack Exchange open telling me how to write my code. It's just like, oh, yeah, no, I know how to do this. And even making changes to my code, like, I had to, I had this week, one of my, like, tasks was I had this simulation that only took into account um, fields going in one direction. And I had to implement two more uh, that, that function differently because one was in a, ma- a magnetic field in another direction so you need like vector cross products and things get complicated and i did it so fast i was like oh i know how to do this and then just wrote it out it compiled first try i'm like beautiful granted one negative sign was wrong but like we're fine mm-hmm. <laughs> um and it's just like how much how much this would have stumped me three years ago <laughs> it would have taken me so much longer and it would have been so much less efficient but i mean that's what school's for you, you learn how to do things better. That's really one of the big positives of getting into research early is mm. that you get these practical, hands-on experiences. Yeah, that's one thing I really appreciated when I when I went to Texas. I was the only person in my in my program who had extensive coding research in the specific kind of code that you know particle physics tends to use, which is JOMP four and root, which are a whole other wheelhouse. But I was the only person with like re- any experience, let alone like at that point, almost two and a half years of experience working with that code. And so I was like, oh, no, I know I know how to do this. If you Like, granted, I was also the only person that didn't need to use it that year, which I was very happy for because I was learning something new. I was learning Mathematica, which is 
as much as I hate it, very useful. Medica gives me the creeps. It makes me upset. <laughs> um, yeah, so I wasn't using it, but I was there in the office to help people who were learning it for the first time. And it gave me such an appreciation for how much I'd learned, even though like a lot of times when I was doing that research, I felt like a code slave. Like it's a practical skill that I now possess. Like in in nuclear physics and particle physics and accelerator physics, it's gonna come up a lot. And like even just terminal stuff that no one had known how to do. They're like, oh, you know, how do I get it into like my work computer from my laptop? And I'm like, oh, you SSH. Do you know how to SSH? And they're like, no, I don't know. It's like, oh, here, here's how you do it. Uh, like installing putty for the first time for those of you who have to use putty <laughs> it's just like it's something you never realize is going to be useful down the line and so having a solid framework for for how to use a computer well is something that I'm, is really valuable yeah even in my office works this comes up like you'd be shocked how little people who work in an office full-time know how to use like excel <laughs> like i get jobs that is a lot of like kind of really basic like repetitive tasks in excel and i make like i record a macro to do it for me and i run that over and over again and i finish in like a tenth of the time they expect and i'm like hey it's done and they're like how'd you do that i'm like basic knowledge of the program you're using <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i think computer literacy is something really important especially in science but kind of everywhere it's really important it's definitely something that'll have to grow Mm. or at least be implemented more earlier yeah and i know they're doing a lot of programs now to get kids into coding yeah they have all different unique ways of doing it can you touch type me yeah i don't know what that is like type without looking at the keyboard yeah yeah right i I remember because when we were very young like early school was kind of when computers were becoming household things and like super common Mm-hmm. and so like you know early 2000s you're you know computers aren't aren't new but they're becoming it's getting realized how important they're going to be in our lives right and so we were we were uh taught to type very officially and i mm-hmm. was so bad at it like like the actual like where your fingers sit on the home keys in which fingers reach out to press which keys i didn't learn that till sophomore year high school really yeah oh no i like elementary school like first second grade we had like typing class i I don't know if it was first and second grade but it was definitely in in elementary school before fourth grade i I knew how to i was technically taught how to touch type with like little video games in the computer lab that you saved onto your floppy disk i love those (laughs) as a 15 year old yeah so it's something that i was taught to do very officially and then didn't actually learn to do myself but now that I'm like an adult who codes, I I touch type obviously. Like, how would you not? Mm-hmm. Like, I I spend my I spend my entire day typing, but I don't touch type the official way. Like, there's a way you're supposed to touch type with like certain. But my my like hands move all around the keyboard, and they just know where things are because I'm so trained onto yeah. my own keyboard. Like especially Z. <laughs> you're supposed to use your pinky. <laughs> Yo, great That's the ring finger. Visual representation. Oh yeah, I keep doing that. <laughs> uh, I'm a big ring finger on the Z kind of guy. Same with Q. I don't. I think my left pinky is my weakest typing. Yeah, finger. it doesn't do anything. It does the A's. <laughs> but 
And the caps lock. Yeah, but I've like become an avid user of caps lock lately. We discussed this last week. Yeah. But it got lost. <laughs> <laughs> we may or may not discuss it next week. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I think I think though computer literacy is definitely a growing thing that's being taught to young people, like kind of starting with our generation, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. It's crazy how quickly it's changed everything. <laughs> yeah. I guess. It's just hard because we, at least I, never really knew anything different. Yeah. Other than having computers there to solve your problems. Yeah. We're very like much assignments where you had to handwrite, like, a paper? Hmm. Ridiculous. Yeah. Who would ever do such a thing? Did you learn, did you learn cursive as a yeah. kid? Yeah. So you had to, like, write little essays in cursive yeah. in, in elementary school. And... Oh, my God. The GRE, the G- where you had to copy that little <laughs> section. And the kid's like, do we have to do this in cursive? And I just got shot back to third grade. Yeah, that that happened at the SAT, too. They always make you, yeah. uh, like, copy in cursive the statement about how you won't share the contents of the test. <laughs> on Reddit, um, one of the suggested pages is the SAT subreddit <laughs> Why? and every once in a while when i see it, i'll go on just to like see what people are up to with the sat <laughs> why because it's just such a throwback oh something really important to, to anyone out there applying to schools or applying to really anything um never go on forums they're terrible i have such a bad habit of doing this I go on forums where people posted like admission stats, like like hey, I got rejected from the school. Here are all my stats, and then you're like, oh, they got higher stats than me. I'll never get in. Yeah. Like don't don't do it. I did it. I literally did it this week. I spent like two hours on a on a grad school admission forum. It was so bad. Just just don't do it. Just say no to admission statistics forums. Like, can we just shut down the entire college confidential website? Because when I was an undergrad, that's where I lived, or applying to undergrad. That's, like, where I where I lived the entire, like, time I was waiting to hear back from schools and, like, getting ready to apply. Mm-hmm. was looking at people's admission statistics on College Confidential. Terrible. Stay off it. Don't do it. Should be outlawed. <laughs> Very bad. And I find myself doing the same thing for grad school. It's never healthy and productive. It's always You gotta bad. stop. Yeah, I know I gotta stop. And yet, sometimes I find my way. Don't be like me. <laughs> Don't be like Audrey. That's stay the, off the forums. Stay off the forums. Forum abuse and resistance education. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Do kids still have dare? I never Is that had still dare. A thing? You never had dare? No, I didn't. Oh. So I suppose that maybe a no. Yeah, probably. Considering not. it was it always a thing. We had this thing in elementary school called Aces. Where it was like a little TV program that would come on. It stands for All Children Exercising Simultaneously. <laughs> so it would come on right after the pledge. Mm. You'd have to get up out of your seat and do this like five minute little exercise like a program. Workout? It'd be like a couple real basic workouts and like a little dance thing. <laughs> like I remember one of them ended with you all, you know, had each other around the shoulders and you'd do a kick line. <laughs> that was how one of them ended. It's the most ridiculous thing. And whenever I bring it up, everyone's like, what? Do you know, speaking of forum, my my high school, as I've mentioned before, was not just a high school. It was a 
pre-K through 12th grade central school. Like a little old red schoolhouse. I mean, yes, it was red, but it was like not tiny as a building because they were like, there was half of it had a second floor. (laughs) Anyway, Um, but like, yeah, it was a very small school, like pre-K through 12th grade. We had probably around 600 kids and you know, most of them are in elementary school. So for um, middle school through high school, you had something called forum, which was like homeroom or like morning announcements, except it's literally everyone in middle school or high school in one auditorium because there's only like eh, 300 of you, probably, if that. Mm-hmm. And so it's just all of you sitting in like specific seats in the auditorium yeah, well, science seats in the auditorium. Yeah, yeah. You like every year. You, oh, I suppose you went with your class. Yeah, you? you went. You went with your like homeroom teacher. I forgot about that. Would stand in in the aisle and like look and see whose seats were missing. And every every year when you got a new homeroom teacher, you get a new seat. But it was always alphabetical, so I'd always sit next to the same people and be like, oh, God damn it! Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to sit next to Stevie again. God damn! I hate that kid. <laughs> what I never realized that I just thought of now. Is that like back in elementary school through high school, mm-hmm. it's so ingrained to you to like be in a specific class with specific people mm-hmm. and like you're under some guideline of a homeroom or whatever periods. Yeah. But that's just non-existent in college and I never really. Yeah. And next semester is our first one where we have no classes together. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a little sad. It's going to be sad. My homework buddy. We got We got to cherish our last few moments. <laughs> oh, in advanced quantum. And especially finals come around our last time in the, uh, the, the honors college lounge. Yeah. Just doing problems out on the board. It's going to be really sad. We got to like schedule time to like at least do research together or something. Yeah. We could do some coding together. Yeah. We'll have code time. Code yeah. hour. Yeah. <laughs> um but i like that idea yeah it's definitely weird to have like especially as you get to be upperclassmen like you just stop seeing all the people that you were in classes with like freshman year because you all go to your own specializations and especially just being friends with people who aren't in your classes yeah like that's unheard of in secondary well is is this secondary school or is high school a secondary school i don't know it's high school it's unheard of in high school middle school and elementary school yeah to some extent to some extent, preschool. <laughs> I didn't go to preschool or kindergarten. All I remember from preschool, I have a few fond memories. Number one, she let us spread shaving cream on a table. I did that in first grade. Two, some kid took my toy, so I growled at him. <laughs> oh, man. No, I was homeschooled for kindergarten. Isn't that sad? It's <laughs> <laughs> a little sad. Back when I was living in Texas, it's homeschooled in kindergarten. Yeehaw. <laughs> um, yeah, it's gonna be weird not having classes together. We'll we'll find a way, and we still have the, the podcast. We're still friends after we finish class, right? <laughs> Turns out we're only friends so you could get my help on the quantum homework even though i usually get help from you on the quantum homework no you only need help from me when you can't remember that theta (laughs) is the polar angle it's the one thing i will always get wrong in physics is that math and physics use different notations for spherical coordinates he literally went over this in class oh my god like the class after you had this trouble he's like oh it's also in griffith's enm i'm like (laughs) it's so frustrating because i learned math like 
in spherical coordinates before I learned physics, so I always choose, like think of the math version of these coordinates, and then I get it wrong on physics homework, so I'm like, why is nothing working? Mm. My integral doesn't converge. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. You ever just have a breakdown because your integrals don't converge? Yes. I sure have. <laughs> oh, man. Everyone learn to code as early as possible. Yeah, go do that. Learn Python. Yeah, yeah. there's so many online resources now to learn it in your spare time. And I think one thing that's useful is thinking of a project that you want to do that would be a coding project. Like, oh, I want to make a game based on this story. Or one I of like... the hardest things for me when I was teaching myself <laughs> how to code was figuring out, like, not just how to apply it, but, like, how to actually do it. Like, what can I write code in and then run it on? That's true. I feel like that's something that don't doesn't get talked about as much. It's like, oh, like, you want to write code in C++? Great. Like, what text editor are you going to use? Are you going to use an IDE? Are you going to... Which, like, compiler are you going to use? Like, probably G++, but do you know that? Like, uh, for certain high-level programming languages, like, it's it's got kind of a barrier to entry of already knowing how computers work and how writing code works, which mm -hmm. is why you start with Python. Mm -hmm. Start with Python, use like Eclipse is the one, isn't it, for Python? Which one's the one? I, I mean, Eclipse is a big prop I started IT. off with some Chrome extension that would run Python. Oh, yeah, you can, you can write code in your browser. Yeah, and then the first IDE I started using was CodeBlocks. Oh, uh, IDE, like for those who oh, don't know yeah. how to code, is an integrated developing environment. It's what you write your code in that, that will tell you where your errors are and compile it for you. I'm hardcore. I write my code straight into the terminal. Mm. Because yeah. for some reason, physicists do that. No one else does that. Why do physicists do really? that? Yeah, I was... <laughs> who was I talking to? I was talking to someone that's not in physics. And I was t like talking to him about like the code I was writing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I just opened it in Vim. He's like... I think it was, might have been my brother who like it does code for a living. Yeah. And he's like, I'm like, oh yeah, I just opened it in Vim. Or like, I was, oh, do you know why? Because sometimes I I type things into Google, but instead of hitting enter, I hit colon WQ <laughs> because yeah. that's how you close and save a Vim file. Yep. And it like integrates into my... And when you hit I to start typing. <laughs> yeah. So, um... I was I was joking around with my brother about that, and then he's like, "Wait, like you write your code in in Vim?" And I'm like, "Yeah, like I just write it straight in the terminal." And he's like, "Why? Why would you do that? Like it's not the best coding environment." Although um, astronomers have developed a lovely thing called Jupiter, mm. which is an amazing IDE that is actually used in yeah, science research. I've seen people using Jupiter. Love Jupiter. It is the best thing ever. Mm. I would use it almost exclusively if I could download my research code on it. <laughs> but for some reason, uh, like, I just get error after error of other things I need to download, and it just doesn't work. Yeah. People, I think a lot of people get scared at the terminal. I think. I was certainly scared of the terminal. Yeah. I think you kind of taught me how to use it. Yeah, because I've never really was. Because, like, my first research experience was straight, like, okay, we, we write all our code for the terminal using Vim. Like, here's how to use it. Here's what we're doing. And you get very good at uh, understanding error messages, and you kind of lose that fear of of coding straight into the terminal really yeah. quickly. Like I I want to be clear, there are ways to ruin your computer through the terminal. Like that's why people are spooked by it. Like you put you put 
the wrong command in there and you could delete all your files permanently. Like it's not ideal, but usually there are protections in place so you don't do that. And if you know what you're doing, like I think that's something to stress. Understand what you're copy pasting into your into your terminal before you do it. Understand why it's working and then everything works fine and you can do so much from the terminal. It's nothing to be afraid of yeah. as long as you take the time to understand what you're putting into it. Those terminal error messages are line after line after line of useless information and there's always one line that tells you exactly what you need to do <laughs> and if you don't know what to look for mm-hmm. it's so intimidating yeah i think i i had the advantage of learning to use the terminal with like a grad student nearby who could like i i would literally just sit behind him while he debugged code running in the terminal and, and or like fixed like jump for version errors like like things like computational things i would just watch him fix and learn from that and I think that that got rid of a lot of my my terminal fear, <laughs> but it is really really nice to just be able to like this is something that I've always said I'm I'm a someone who's using Linux on my my laptop and my desktop for my personal computers right now, and I really value understanding how the terminal works, so that if there's something about my computer that I don't like or would like to change, I can do it. I can change it. I can change everything about the way my computer works. Because I have access to the terminal, and I have access to all the files that tell it how to run. And I think that's something that, especially coming from a world of, like, Apple products where it is what it is, and you don't get to, you can change your wallpaper if you want. (laughs) Like, coming from that mindset of, like, oh, it's just my computer, it works, and I use it. But instead going to an environment where you really are the one who makes your computer what it is, is something really valuable that I think gets overlooked i'm not i'm not a linux snob but i do really enjoy it you're a linux fanatic i'm a i'm not even a fanatic i'm not that good at like bash or or programming programming how my computer works or anything but i think generally i'm (laughs) a big control freak i don't know if that's clear so i um if there's like a tiny tiny thing i don't like about my computer it will bother me (laughs) for a long time until i like do my research and find out how to fix it and i and i do it and i think that's the great thing about working in linux and knowing how to use a terminal is that i can do that it's like oh like the font on my on my power bar doesn't match the font at the on the title bars of my windows like oh my god i'm gonna freak out and so you go and you fix it or, you know, like it's just like little things, but you learn more and more through doing that. So, software is cool. Mm-hmm. Mm. Don't be afraid of the terminal. Just just take it on. <laughs> Fight the beast. Because you're, you're coding straight from the terminal right now, right? I am, yeah. Yay. I'm trying to get Charlie onto it. He's still scared. <laughs> I, I put the, the Linux subsystem for Windows onto his computer and like set it all up so that he could start doing things. He's still used it. Hmm. It'll take some trial by error. I know. I gotta Unless throw him in. Unless he starts using Jupiter. <laughs> I, I don't know. Anyway, anything else we want to talk about? Plant update. Plant update. Uh, we said this last week, but you never heard it. Uh, we've got it's overall looking. Mm, I don't know, especially in the bag, Matt. You're seeing the worst side. It's of not it. looking as good as last week. Yeah. I'll say that. Okay, I need to water it. Okay. But there is, I see from here, two little spriggans of new growth coming from underneath. 
which is a wonderful, wonderful sign. So we've got two little baby fronds coming up. They look super healthy. And so it's not a dead plant. It is growing, which is more than I could ask for at this point. My other plants are doing beautiful. Look at this guy. It's got a little, like, I want to have babies little strand. Like, what is this called? Like a node or something? You think of, <laughs> I, that is most certainly not the word for it. No, it's like a, it's a you thing. You physicist. No, oh my God. No, it's like a thing where like it's a, the plant like puts out like this special branch for, for like seeds and stuff. absolutely no idea. Anyway, it means my plants are very happy and doing well and it's grown so much. Like, oh, look how beautiful this plant is. And my other one's also still putting out new leaves even though it's winter now, like, it's crazy how fast these plants are going. And yet my fern, like, <laughs> is looking so sad. It's just the most uh, fickle of my plants right now. It's the bane of my existence, that fern. I think mm. that fern's going to kill me. <laughs> I think you're going to kill it first. It'll we'll be see. a race. Hey, new growth. So we'll see. Yeah. Here's hoping. Yeah, so... That was the plant update. Sorry about last week's episode. We'll we'll try again and and have our guest back next week and recover what we've lost. Um I do have um the audio file of just our guest. <laughs> so if you want a one-sided conversation, <laughs> you got it. If you ever wanted to feel like you're on the podcast, we'll upload that. We'll play it and you can <laughs> pretend you're the one giving the conversation. Oh man. Well, you might not get the responses you're looking for. Yeah, probably not. All right, anything else? No, I'm, no, I'm content. All right, we'll see you next week. Thanks for watching. <laughs> <laughs>